0: Hey, hey, hey man, hey, man. Hey man. Watch out! It's a woodpecker from space!
1: <laughs> Hello, dear listener. Welcome back to an Eagles Deer covering at long last December
0: 1984.
1: Hooray! I'm Peter. I'm Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and let's crack on. I don't know about you, but for us it's been a totalitarian effort to get. <laughs>
0: I'm totalitarianly ready.
1: This covers Eagle Issues 141 to 145 from December 1984. That's a five-issue stretch for those counting along at home. So, yeah, fun and games. A bit of a bookwork shenanigans still are happening as we close out the year. But, you know, that's how we roll here at We are Eagles Dead Towers.
0: December nineteen eighty four.
1: David, I'm so excited. There was a bumper load of things happening uh, in December nineteen eighty four. Some good, some not so good, depending mm. on where you were. Beverly Hills Cop was released.
0: Yeah, the only good one. Sorry,
1: <laughs> Madonna's Like a Virgin was released. Yep. Ted Iron Giant Hughes became the British laureate. Mm-hmm. In Russia, Vega One and Two were launched to meet Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet is coming, in, listeners. Oh, yeah. And the Hong Kong Handover Declaration was signed.
0: Ooh, where's that
1: taking you? Yeah. Desmond Tutu got a Nobel Peace Prize. RIP. And uh, do they know it's Christmas was released? That's that's like a big cultural touchstone for everyone there. Mm. Oh, not so good news. The Bhopal incident occurred in India.
0: Oh, yeah. So, yeah. In
1: Carbide, killing you know, lots of people.
0: Yes. Oh, God. Still images in my head from that. More locally, in New Zealand, December the 7th, Queen Street Riots. Do you remember them, Dave?
1: Not very well, actually. I, I, I'm sure I've, I watched the news, but sort of probably went over my head a bit.
0: Yeah, it was a hot Friday night, um, end of school year. So it was an end of year sort of free concert in Aotea Square in Auckland. And uh, several bands, but most notably Diddy Smash with Dave Dobbin, who has been a musical feature in past episodes, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it all kicked off basically. the The crowd was getting a little bit unruly. I think a lot of people were hydrating because of the evening.
1: Yeah, as you do. And as... depending
0: on where you were in the crowd and who was reporting, Dobbin triggered it off with some inopportune remarks about the police, or the police were getting heavy handed, or someone was up to hijinks on top of a policeman's helmet from a high balcony or something like that. But anyway, it, it escalated into you know a full on riot, shop fronts being demolished a car being turned over and set alight and whew, i was on camp that weekend with my scout chums and we were listening to the news on a ghetto blaster which had something like six to eight big you know the d-sized batteries on it and um, mm-hmm. so you, you got about half an hour's listening before you needed to go and buy some more uh, and it felt like the world was turning over it was amazing But the world wasn't turning over. It was quite a different time in December 1984, David. Can you imagine, back then, there was a June movie and Ghostbusters was also coming out.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Funny you should mention that. There's a lot of synergies going on, even it being a a hot and rather sticky night in New Zealand, as we do the recording.
0: (laughs) It's all dark and thundery down here, but never mind.
1: Speaking of ominous portents, Peter.
0: Indeed. So... For a limited time, it's Doomlord, by Alan Grant, art by the amazing Eric Bradbury. Three episodes this month as we're starting a new story, and it's The Return of Doomlord Vec.
1: In a story the internet likes to call The Death of Doomlord. Ah! That we prefer to refer to as... What's so (laughs) gloomy-doomy?
0: (laughs) I did not know. I'd written in pencil Jonathan Livingston Doomlord for reasons which may be obvious later on. Ah. We open in a busy high street where Doomlord has been filming for his next TV spectacular. With producer and pinstripe freak Johnny Carolla, he blocks out a sting on a dodgy antiques dealer flogging high-end wares which he's duped his customers into parting with for low-end prices. For the sting... Doomlord will be in disguise as one customer. You'll need to look the part, says Corolla, someone really stupid. I've already thought of the perfect identity. Observe. And Vex image morphs into the familiar shape of Johnny Corolla.
1: <laughs>
0: nice. <laughs> Fair play.
1: Fair play. Johnny Corolla takes a lot.
0: Oh, that, yeah, so. he, can, he can carry a joke. Due to form, the shifty dealer suggests the vase Doomlord presents him as only worth a fiver. But a sudden slip of the fingers renders a priceless Ming piece in hundreds of pieces. Worse, Johnny Corolla's features slide and transform into something more bestial. Half human, half Noxian. all oh, Bradbury.
1: Ooh, it's very D- Dracula-esque nightmares, <laughs> isn't it? He's
0: still scratching that, that scream itch. Doom Lord is losing the ability to shapeshift. As the real Corolla shuts down the chute... A shaken Vex senses a growing weakness overcoming him. He has fallen ill, and back at the Suster's guest guesthouse, he examines himself with his Noxian super ring. We see he has a heart, naturally, kidneys, lungs, something called crombs, and a resiny absorption ducts.
1: Doesn't have misky pinkles on his crab jammers. that's the idea.
0: No, no, no. Um, they're all in good working order. Uh, now for the brain. Ooh, bad news. His life gland has shrunk. Cut off for too long from the energizing emanations of his homeworld. His life gland is shriveling and at present rate, Doomlord has six months to live.
1: Yeah. Why is it always six months? It's never three months. It's never nine months. It's never seven it's weeks. Six months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know that old ghactor. Oh doctor, how long have I got? Six what six weeks? Six months? Five? <laughs> four <laughs>
0: I think we'll put this yeah. down to Noxian precision.
1: Oh, fair enough. Yeah,
0: I'd say Noxian regularity, but we haven't been told that he has those parts. Uh, so Vic realises that Dread Council knew his likely fate in exiling him. Grim. With no practical help from Mrs. Suster, Vic does what any person on Ration Time does. He works on his bucket list.
1: Uh, Mrs. Suster does suggest Dr. Fett. He did clean up Mickey's it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> a little bit more serious than that. I didn't know for years what Impetigo was. It just was this thing in comics that people had. It's like, oh, it's a school sores. That's what we call it. <laughs> but just have to make it sound flash or she can't charge a fee.
0: Yeah. Well, the first encounter of Impetigo I got was um, through Strontium Dog Rage, the, the, the supporting character Impetigo Jones. Oh, right. <laughs> which is, of course, a joke on Inigo Jones, which I was completely oblivious to as a teen as well. Back to the story. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Right. Sorry. So first stop, see the world. Energize it to seagull. And in various mammalian forms, well, and avian forms, uh, Doomlord flies around the globe. He conducts his grand tour, swimming with whales, running with a caribou in Canada, and in human form, communing with the, quote, primitive Papuans and world leaders. There's Muldoon. <laughs> I wondered whether you'd pick that up. I don't see Muldoon anywhere. He's gone, David, he's gone. We just have to let it go. Until too weak to fly anymore, he returns to Noxian form and takes a hard landing in Giza on the side of a pyramid. He lives, but not for long. And in the time remaining, he sees many wrongs still to be put right. Setting off for an unnamed sub saharan Republic, a great famine has struck the arid land. Can you say topical?
1: I say (laughs) Ethiopia.
0: Doomlord checks in with the local Red Cross camp and sees the devastation for itself, hearing of the corruption at the nation's top, which has diverted aid. With his ring, he blasts into the desert floor and brings water to the gathered refugees. His head jolts with pain, but onward he continues to Kababi, the Republic's capital and the heart of the conspiracy. And that's Doomlord. Interesting.
1: Next time. He has
0: seen too much. Kill him. So, I was going to make a little point about Doomlord addressing real world woes, but of course, this is where we began with the strip back in its photo days. Mm. And, and so, you know, Geminids and uh, Nevermind the Pollocks, they really have been a bit of a sci fi aside to what's normally been sort of one foot in the real world.
1: You know, the Death Lords is a sci-fi site as well. Yes, it's the first real-world problem since the photo strips ended. Yes, yep, yep. And even then, Doomlord 3, you know, there's a big element of the world being a, a, a pretty, pretty sorry place. Mm. But conversely, it was also about this other Doomlord showing up to wreak havoc.
0: Yeah, yeah, quite. I'd forgotten about the, uh, the Death Lords and the other Doomlord. Yeah, nice to see him involve himself in real-world Activities again, but mm. yeah, obviously, obviously very topical. I wonder whether there might have been an editorial hand over Mr. Grant's shoulder saying,
1: let's make a deadline. I don't know if, you know, Mr. Grant's usually pretty much on ticket. I'm just surprised that it's put down to corruption and Doomlords not you know, creating the reins. And it's a very still topical, slightly edgy mm-hmm. subject.
0: Yeah, he's addressing a very present issue at the time. Without, yes. the, without the yes. aid of an all-celebrity singing chorus, I may add.
1: Yes. Fair enough. Energizer to disintegrate the world. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let them know it's Noxian time again. It's a good start to another run of Doomlord stories, and Eric Bradbury is always welcome.
0: Of course, yeah. And of course the intrigue of Doomlord not at his best.
1: That would oh,
0: be interesting to see where that...
1: I am what these humans call ill. <laughs> yes. But speaking of sinister undertakings, mm-hmm. Peter, it's the Fists of Danny Pike. Story by Dee Spence, that's John Wagner, Art by the ever-wonderful Jim Burns. Previously on Danny Pike, on a flight back from the USA to arrange a bout with Kid Titus, World Heavyweight Champion Danny Pike's plane is hijacked or Bonjour Jacques if you want to extend the stupid accents that are present in this episode (laughs) Having beaten a brace of the Boeing bandits in a bout of bare-knuckle brawling our boy bypasses borrowed ballistics before barging aboard the airborne bridge Well done Yes, our favourite friendly fighter forgoes the felon's forfeited firearms, (laughs) favouring faith in his fists as he forges forwards to the flight crew-only (laughs) foredeck. Well done. Thank you. Storming the cockpit, Danny is confronted by a goon with a grenade and, lashing out, grabs the desperado's digits, detonator included, with his hand wrapped around the hijacker's... Oh, my hand! danny knocks the man clean out with a single blow and holds the unconscious insurrectionist down while the flight crew fumble with the safety pin safety pin yeah well that's what they call it they do I... call
0: it that yeah i guess it's it's the sort of the clip isn't it
1: yeah the, the clip you know it's mm. a pin yeah it's they they refer to it as a pin i've never heard of it as a safety pin but no if there isn't one it's very unsafe yeah so. yeah you're aware of the engineering term a Jesus pin?
0: Yes, yes, I am. You are the Jesus nut on a uh, on a helicopter, which of course doesn't exist. But
1: but, but if, it, if it fails, everyone has an extremely religious experience. <laughs>
0: yes. Okay, so the Jesus nut was a mythical nut that held the rotors on the top of the helicopter. That was a Vietnam thing, apparently. But you just had to be there.
1: Tottenham, I was at. But there you go.
0: So the hijackers are from El Santos, which places yes Danny Pike in the Mannix universe.
1: Which is the Dream of Universe? Not yet. I don't know. <laughs> missed, they missed a trick having the Crow Street kids watching Danny Pike's boxing match of episodes ago. Absolutely. Let's put a pin in that and see if we can tie it all together.
0: Yeah, still working on my map. So don't yes,
1: back to the story. A day later, Danny and manager Arthur arrive home and Danny is picked up from the airport by girlfriend Jane. But no sooner are they on the motorway than one of Jane's tires blows out and the start the car is sent careening off the road. Jane struggles to keep control of the vehicle and veers wildly, bouncing off barriers and other traffic before coming to a rest on the hard shoulder. They're both safe, but Danny begins to question his luck. Over the next fortnight, Danny's training steps up for the fight with Kid Titus. But during a normal training bout, after a few punches, the boxer's whole ring collapses, and Danny struggles from the wreckage with a sprained wrist, and Danny's worries intensify. Arthur sends him home to recover, and that night Danny settles down to bed with Horlicks in the ring. <sighs> Sorry, a, a drink of Horlicks and a copy of the ring magazine. <laughs> I was going to say, this one's painful otherwise. Well, I was going to say, it's not a Peter Jackson fanzine, dear listener. It's a premier boxing publication that's still going to this digital day. So, there you go. <laughs> Unlike the dandy. Danny spills his cup and curses his luck once more and goes to sleep. Not even cleaning up the mess, cheeky belga. Mm. That carpet will stay. More money than cents, these guys. (laughs) But that night, a fire starts in the room below. So just a reminder, dear listeners, please check your smoke alarms. Yeah,
0: check your appliances before you go to bed.
1: Danny wakes smelling smoke and rushes downstairs to find the lounge ablaze. Flame and Nora quite literally. Mm. Danny beats back the fire with a nearby heron. A heron? <laughs> well it's hard to tell by the silhouette in <laughs> the thing. It's probably a rolled up carpet. It is a rolled up carpet. I, I thought it was a swan. <laughs> it was yeah. Flogging flogging Pictures on the
0: Facebook page. <laughs> yes, yes. He has to be seen to be believed. Yeah. It's probably a probably a carpet, but maybe it was a shag pile.
1: Five points to Adamson. <laughs> but Danny has to beat his own retreat when he starts smouldering himself and he dives into the outside pool before he combusts. The fire brigade arrive, but it's too late. Danny's million-pound, definitely not haunted, cursed house <laughs> is raised to the ground, taking with it everything Danny owns. One assumes including his picture of his gran.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about that. And of course that coffee stain's never coming up. <laughs>
1: Danny is now convinced the Kid Titus fight is jinxed. A view supported by a news report from the States the following morning that shows Kid Titus' has hired voodoo witch doctor, a Dr. Samdy look-alike, Dr. Death, who's put a hex on Danny with a rubber chicken on a stick or a duck of doom. What a cock.
0: (laughs) Quack, quack. I got a real um, screaming Jay Hawkins vibe
1: of him. A couple of times I thought he was J.K. Simmons in Blackface, but I, I don't know why. And Dr. Death is very quick to point out that his lawyers advise him that he cannot make any specific claims as to actual consequences. No. Though he does pull out a little boxing glove wearing clay doll, which he proceeds to stab with needles on live TV. Oh. Arthur is quick to dismiss all this as a stunt to get into Danny's head, and the fight training continues, but Danny's been distinctly rattled. But his luck holds, and there are no further incidents until Danny and his entourage arrive in New Orleans, where they are met at the airport by Dr. Death himself, who dances in front of the cameras with his fantastically fake foul, of fickle fortune. <laughs> How did he get that through biosecurity? That's what. <laughs> it's a rubber. It's a rubber bird of ill omen. <laughs> Phony plastic pulse repeater But at that moment Danny slips on a puddle And takes a tumble Issue 145 fight night arrives And Danny is not on form at all Arthur and trainer Lyle try to talk A superstitious Danny down But this distraction could cost him the match But as the announcer introduces Danny into the ring Dr. Death lets up dancing and gibbering curses Gumbo gumbo Shake that chicken Danny Pike is gonna Take a licking. <laughs> It's dodgy. I do like the trainers he's wearing. Again, photos on the Facebook page, people. Yeah. While he's incredibly dodgy, he is at least a character. Yeah. And boxing is a mind game. Yes. Very much so.
0: Yeah. Well, hence, you know, you got your pre-bout boasting and goading. So it makes some kind of sense.
1: It does, but put a pin in there. And I'm yeah, not talking yeah. about a clay doll. Okay. The bout starts, but despite being off form... Titus leaves too many openings and Danny starts to claw back his confidence. But as Danny unleashes his usual dynamite blow, Titus <laughs> weaves and Danny's punch swings wide and takes out the ref. Next time, more voodoo hoodoo for Danny.
0: Oof, tricky.
1: In 2020 hindsight, and I hadn't seen it when I was reading the comic, but reading it now, I always associate this more with wrestling. Mm. The fake announcer and the. I'm going to put a hex on you and all the mind games and the d- people dancing around the ring. and Totally, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very much what I would consider a wrestling thing. But yeah, it's, it's probably something that did exist in the boxing I- I at the time. Maybe not so much in the British arm of it, but I'm sure John Wagner knows his stuff.
0: Yeah, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt.
1: I do remember the story as a kid. It, it, and it's quite funny. I just thought it came earlier in the whole Danny Pite saga and was tied up with that New Orleans fight with the guy who arrived in the cage.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) And the bit with the ref was topical because the famous ref being knocked out from the Malcolm in the Middle opening credits, DeWitt versus Carradine or Mm -hmm. Caradus or something, was in 1982. So, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Okay. But it's definitely a comedy run for Danny Pike. Yes. But as you say, it's about the mind games of the sport. It's not great plot developed, but it's an interesting character study.
0: Yeah. And of course, Danny Pike's terrible horrible, no good very bad
1: day. Yes, yes. I don't know if we'll see the Gypsy Boy
0: anymore. (laughs) No. But speaking of bad days, it's the 13th floor by Ian Holland, who may or may not be John Wagner and Alan Grant, and Jose Ortiz. Jerry Knight, mild mannered computer administrator, has had quite the day. He's recently discovered that his building's automated superintendent, Max, is a murderer. And now, he's trapped in a frozen wilderness in Max's virtual 13th floor, facing a likely permanent exit pursued by a bear. He begs release from Max, and he gets it. The lift appears, and Jerry leaps for it, finding only a teddy bear in his hands. This is just a fraction of my power, Jerry. There's nothing I can't do on my thirteenth floor. The floor of the lift ripples like quicksand and Jerry sinks through, falling down the shaft into a dugout canoe on white waters. Fancy a pleasant river cruise, Jerry?
1: Willy Wonka's boat trip style, yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) As the tide carries them, Max's screen tells Jerry all about every victim he's had on his virtual floor every single one and despite Max insisting that they were bad people and a threat to his tenants Jerry says he has no right to behave like a god you're a danger and a menace and you've got to be stopped but a rumbling starts and the canoe's destination becomes obvious enormous falls ahead as the canoe goes over a terrified Jerry collects his wits and denies the illusion reappearing back in the lift yes Jerry I know when I'm beaten before you shut me down, there's one more thing I'd like you to see. Yeah? Look closely at my screen. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. But Jerry resists the clumsy hypnosis attempt, throwing his shoe into the pulsating screen. Max admits defeat again, but as the doors reopen and Jerry passes through, he slams them shut on the controller's head, knocking him out. Oof. Yeah, tricky. <laughs> yes. Nurse Willis in 15E receives a call from Max. She is summoned to Jerry's aid. But first, the video screen pulses with a hypnotic glow. Mm. Nurse Willis recovers Jerry's prone body, urged on by Max to drag the poor man back to her flat and tie his concussed frame to a chair.
1: Now, listeners. Health and safety notice. That is not how you lift a body. Bend your knees, women. This is why we have so many bad backs in the
0: medical industry. Even then, as your designated health and safety officer, I should say you should be pushing that body, not pulling it. <laughs> However, she gets it back to the flat and ties his concussed frame to a chair. Max ruminates that he can take no chances. As much as he likes Jerry, he's got to be dealt with permanently. The police arrive, wanting to talk to Jerry about Bert Runch. What a time! About Bert Runch's memory loss around his murder of technician Bryce. Max says, Jerry's away for the day. Perhaps you could talk to Bert over the phone. One hypnotic phone call later, and Bert is singing like a canary on acid, weaving a rambling tale of little green men and Bryce hitbutting his defences crying club. He's sectioned. Job done. But back at Nurse Willis's flat, neighbouring Mrs. Kinnock wanders in and finds Jerry unconscious and tied up. Max thinks quickly. Yes. <laughs> Jerry's helping Nurse Willis practice first aid, Mrs. Kinnock. Isn't that right, Nurse? Yes, Max, I will obey. (laughs) Is that so? You don't look very comfortable, Mr. Knight. Are you all right? He's pretending to be unconscious, Mrs. Kinnock. He's doing a splendid job of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, if, if I was found... Tied up by a woman dressed as a nurse, I'd probably pretend to be asleep too. Let
0: sleeping dogs lie.
1: The whole being tied up and dressed up is, 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 is a totally different world now to the.
0: 80s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sufficiently impressed with Jerry's commitment to the role, Mrs. K leaves, and Max and Nurse Willis bundle the stirring Jerry into the lift. Where alone and still somewhat vulnerable, Jerry is subjected to a phantasmagoria by Max who then soothes and lulls him into a trance. Jerry is now under Max's control. Max only has one more job to do. He borrows a thousand pounds for presents for all the tenants, 1984 money, day. And at Bert's trial, a post-hypnotic command is triggered at the guilty verdict. Bert strikes a copper and bursts through the court window, free. He runs like a cheetah and punches like a mantis shrimp with the cops in pursuit but eventually makes it undetected to Max's rear entrance. <laughs> That's what it says. The police arrive looking for Bert but though they get down on their hands and knees near the air conditioning and literally up in Max's grill there's no <laughs> sign of Bert Runch. Next day in the rec hall there's a Christmas party for all the residents. They cheer Max and on his 13th floor because it isn't always used for horrible things Bert enjoys his own Christmas with Santa and his elves. Ho, 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 Bert. And a very special Merry Christmas to you too, readers. And that's Christmas with
1: Max. (laughs) Merry Christmas, Bert. So, Bert has gone body and soul into the 13th floor, yes? Yes, he has. So, this is our first evidence that the 13th floor isn't purely some sort of mental thing. Bert's gone somewhere. He can't be found in the building.
0: Oh, yeah, it's definitely a place.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So why does Max need to dispose of bodies all the time?
0: Robo Machines by Tom Tully and Mario Capaldi.
1: Oh dear. <laughs> Sorry, Pete. In this Transformers adjacent comic book, a tie in with Bandai, evil metamorphizing alien machines, led by mad scientist Strondomes, have arrived on Earth with plans to invade, with the police from their own world in hot pursuit. But in the town of Chokum, evil robot vehicles attack. Commander Cycle, who is a Cycle.
0: Cycle
1: guns down a hapless policeman while Stromdez watches from a distance but back in the village a brave gas tanker driver tries to fight back and rams his empty lorry into the back legs of Tank an evil robot machine who transforms into a tank who metamorphs into a tank (laughs) Tank pitches forward and crashes into cycle causing the two to fight the villains aren't very friendly even with each other But unfortunately, having two giant robots duking it out in your town is just as, if not more destructive, than them actively trying to destroy it. Meanwhile, Mm. the mighty command center of the Roboton security forces arrives, and security leader and Microsoft wannabe, Excel, orders his troops not to transform, not even to metamorph, but to identity change. (laughs) <laughs> and they open up the main doors Tomb of the Cybermen style of their ship And deploy Leader 1 A fighter jet And number 1 leader presumably And yes. dozer A bulldozer And Hans or Hans Cuff, Who's a police car, Yeah Because you know, German police are what you need as the good rover machines arrive on the scene, they divert to a sports ground where battle can take place with less carnage and leader one pretends to be shot down in a field as a feint to draw the villains away from the CBD. Strondomes flies to his minions. Cause yeah, Strondomes can fly now, which is nice and he gives them a bollocking for leaving the town, but the bevy of bad bots are confronted by Leader 1 and they recognize him as being the shining star of the accursed security forces and Leader 1 recognizes them as a gang of petty criminals and battle in shoes. So Dozer and Hans join the very toyetic fray and the villains are soon routed, but Strondhomes has a plan and leads the retreating minions to a nearby comprehensive school mm. guess which music I'm gonna cue here <laughs> which they proceed to destroy
0: <laughs> school's out
1: <laughs> no. and here's something very interesting happens in issue 144 if you haven't noticed we have a change of artist from the fairly clean lines of Capaldi we now go to the more scratchy stylings of Keith Raymond Keith Kim Arnold.
0: Raymond Kim Raymond
1: Kim Raymond
0: Kim Raymond who's probably leading up to that but been doing some Judge Dreads including bits of City of the Damned and some Judge Decker stories so yeah I wondered where he got to right we'll, we'll,
1: we'll put a pin in that, and we'll carry on with the story man this is a lot of pins <laughs> voodoo Christmas hedgehog The rogue robots pound the ground around the school, creating mini earthquakes, blocking the exits and setting fires around the school buildings, before scarpering, making a clean getaway as the heroic machines have to clean up the mess. What the hero bots were doing while the villains caused all this carnage is anybody's guess. Hmm, maybe they were playing cards, don't know. While Leader One sucks water out of the pool to put out the fires bet Danny Pike wishes he was there yeah. using his empty fuel tanks mm. empty fuel tanks need to be very careful about fuel contamination because it would make the fire worse
0: I was thinking the same thing um, maybe it's not a flammable
1: fuel yeah. or, or better depending on your, on your outlook if you've ever watched Invader's in. made the yeah. fire worse no I Thanks. made it better <laughs>
0: So, so, he's got some empty fuel tanks. Not all of his fuel tanks are empty, because otherwise that could be quite a short strip for
1: him. Well, I, I just i am intrigued by the fact these guys have fuel, because, you know, mm. they're electric or something. They've got fuel tanks, which implies they're gas guzzlers. Not too so impressed by the robots, to be honest. Anyway, Dozer proceeds to punch holes in the school walls to let the trapped kids out. Though, understandably, this causes some concern amongst the children. Yeah. But then, one of the kids has psychic powers, as you do. <laughs> Wolfie Smith? No. Uh, well, Tom Tully. <laughs> Baby Bristow, the sensitive one, bump back a year? No. <laughs> Charlie Brampton, the weird spooky kid no one seems to like? Could be. Yeah. Charlie senses these terrifying machines mean no one harm and proceeds to walk out and talk with the robots, while his classmates and teacher... Who looks suspiciously like Mister Razorblade, must choose between <laughs> following him or facing the fires slowly engulfing the school. The class escapes, but when Charlie hears about the attack on the town, he begs Handscuff for a lift so he can check on his parents. But they're dead, Jim. Merry Christmas, kids. Next time, <laughs> thrill to the Robo Machines in action again next week. Yeah, things are happening, but they, mm-hmm. they sort of buy the Tom Tully numbers. The art change is interesting. You go from Capaldi being very clean and tidy, but the robot's looking a bit clunky, to Raymond, who's rougher and more scratchy, bakey and burn style, but it's a lot more dynamic. But I'm not sure it works better. I mean, the robot's being clunky. They're clunky. They're toys. They don't bend and move dynamically, so uh, I'm not quite sold on it.
0: It's a tricky balance, isn't it? Do you respect the toy and have them doing things that only the toy can do?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or do you stretch the format and use the imagination? I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be inclined to do the latter. And going back to what I said in the last episode, you know, if this was Kevin O'Neill or Mick McMahon, they'd be stretching the format. In fact, they'd mm. probably be, you know, distorting the shape of the robots and all that kind of stuff and make them their robots and mm. everybody'd be sharing that on, I'm sure. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I I I, I agree. I can't decide between Capaldi's rigid <laughs> dedication to the form or Raymond's dynamics. I think it comes down to yeah, who does the transformations best, and I was about to say Raymond, but actually Capaldi's putting the work in.
1: Yeah, again, we're judging six weeks against two weeks, and hmm. unfortunately, <sighs> talking about the art and making up my head headcanon about Is This Crow Street... You know, and this is the worst disaster since that school trip to Canada. <laughs> it's more fun than the story, a bit. It's very silly. Yeah. It's not even Iron Legion robots coming and breaking up your town, is it? Although there have been a few deaths, you know, it's it's quite gritty, but standing next to Doomlord going, well, I'm gritty, and Doomlord's going, hold my Noxian brain beverage. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> the whole world is my Petri dish. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, poor Cholcombe being made an example of
1: (laughs) Me, but Dumoul did that But he did it better (laughs) Yes, he did Yeah
0: Yeah. Ah, let's move on from (laughs) Cholcombe It is a very silly place
1: Speaking of dodgy franchises and Mickey Mouse stories
0: Speaking of electronics will be the death of us all It's the Amstor Computer First story for this month is The Face of the Devil by A. Stone Art by Masip I tried to look up Masip Couldn't see anything
1: Story number 13997, searched by Alexander Barry of Kittering.
0: Of Kittering, yes.
1: That's who we have to blame. It's all
0: your fault, Barry. In a painting studio, a young woman artist, drawn in the European style, feels tired as she works on a landscape. She calls it a day. It's actually a landscape. Next morning, she enters the studio and finds the work changed, a leer and saturnine face painted over her rustic vignette. Disgusted, she bins it appalled at the horrible visage that appears and reappears day after day on each of her paintings she calls the police who don't believe her and that afternoon she sleeps fitfully her head filled with that same face as an oncoming car appears beneath it fleeing the studio she runs down a country road turns out she's in the country and is struck and killed by a car filled with costumed partygoers: mickey frank dracula and someone hooded so that's you, Mickey Mouse.
1: That's you, Mickey Mouse.
0: That's you, Mickey Mouse. That's Mickey Mouse, Frankenstein, Dracula, and a hooded driver. The occupants check and find her dead. And as the driver, hooded, with a devil mask on, he urges them to flee. It's a hit and run. But the assailant has already been revealed on the victim's last painting. And back at the studio, a ghostly hand completes the picture of the car below including its registration number. On the plate. The end.
1: So, uh... Saved by the
0: last panel, I think.
1: <laughs> you, you say that, but... So, so what was the ghost trying to do? Get revenge for her or send her running into the... Ca- I... Just, just, that, that, hmm? In my head, I was reading it going, what you really need is a voiceover going, yeah, yeah, we've drawn a car here, that's a bit of an accident. But they're no accidents, they're happy accidents. Let's just turn this into a license
0: plate. <laughs> it's a happy little car. It's a happy <laughs> little <Yes>. car. <laughs> How about this theory that it's it's not a warning, it's simply a premonition, and the fact that the painting is finished as she lies dying or dead is the end of the premonition. So scrub the idea that the the hand is some sort of ghostly hand of justice identifying the killer and just saying, this is the end of the premonition.
1: If it was a premonition, though, surely it would be her hand, not some butch set of knuckles holding a paintbrush. I don't know, there's just something... I'm overthinking these things. You are. Oh, yeah. But it's very nice art, and... Uh, ga- a ghastly Tale?
0: Yes, yeah, um, it's got... It's two pages. It's got um, Scream all over it. I mean, we've been saying this a lot, and we know that there are definite Scream stories in the m series... One coming up, but I just wonder how many do they have in reserve, or uh, were these Tharg's Tales, Were they around at the time? Maybe, maybe it was just a nice slush pile that IPC could draw on anywhere.
1: Maybe some of them could be reprints for all we know. As you say, it's got a very European style to it. Mm. Speaking of things that might have been uh, cast from elsewhere, Peter,
0: in a European
1: style. Yes, issue number 142, we have The Lady in Grey, story number 658, programmed by Martin Eustace of Cornwall, story by A. Stone, art by Casanovas, which is always lovely. Criminal on the run, Paul Edwards hides overnight in Madame Tussauds to evade the police. But he falls foul of the ghostly villains and miscreants who haunt the Chamber of Horrors, including George Joseph Smith, Burke and Hare, and a faceless Jack the Ripper a la Sapphire and Steel. Mm. And Edwards must suffer multiple forms of death and torture from a choking chair to the guillotine. But then he struggles free, fighting off his captors, forcing them back with a fire hose before he is frozen in place by the ghostly image of a grey lady. Madame Tussaud herself. The mm. next morning, a new waxworks of a terrified man is found in the Chamber of Horrors. Still aware, but no longer human, he is carted off and melted down. Mm. Nice art. Very long. It's a weird five page story. Yeah. Library of Death?
0: Would be Library of Death. I really like it. Casanovas has done a horror based story already which we thought was a scream, which is you know, the, the magician story of the last episode, yep. dripping with detail. And quite nice that the, the obvious twist, ooh, it's Madame swords. They get that out of the way quickly. Yeah,
1: I like it. I, I did realise we have sort of seen this story before in the Collector Toytime promotion. I'm wondering if this was some sort of scream Madame Tussauds tie in, because we know there was a Madame Tussauds a voucher for ghastly's face and other things. And the art's very detailed for things that actually are in the Chamber of Horrors. It's not like Barry and Co to miss a trick. Yeah, okay. Is it something that's should be something else? I I just wonder if it's a lost piece of fine tuning of Scream's history there.
0: Interesting interesting point. Yeah. There's no information and in it's ghastly that might sort of back that up. I mean, I I like I like the theory.
1: I don't recall, and I apologise if it is in there and I've just completely forgotten about it. But, uh, hmm.
0: yeah. Oh buy it. Bomb on Flight 109, which is story number 1984. Hey! Uh, programmed by Stefan Robinson on Diffit. Diffie?
1: It's uh, Welsh, so it could be Clanson yes. or something oh. like that,
0: yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Written by A. Hibbert Ayat by Heinzel. Commercial pilot Philip Day checks into room 109 at the Paradise Hotel, Los Angeles, the day before a big flight. Later, he switches on the TV and catches a show about a bomb on a plane. Flight 109. Great! That's just the sort of film I wanted to see, I don't think. He switches off the TV, but dreams of another doomed flight, a bomb on board flight 109 and a Skellington co-pilot. He wakes with a start. The next day he checks in to the airport, but on hearing he's up for a flight, one hundred nine, he's visibly shaken, trying to alert those in charge that the flight has a bomb on board. But they've checked and there's no bomb, and he's replaced as a pilot, which is an excellent (laughs) proof. The plane taxis the runway, takes to the sky, and explodes. Back at the paradise, Two cleaners hear the news outside room one oh nine, and one remembers the TV has to be replaced.
1: It ain't worked for weeks. The end. Bum, bum, bum. It's like the first premonition story, but better.
0: It's not a scream story. I'm thinking. No. Could easily have been a collective story.
1: You are aware, of course, it's set in the Doom Lord universe.
0: Oh, why, why, why?
1: Because Johnny Carola's moonlighting as a cleaner with Doom You know, packing in the TV series. Right. Photos on the Facebook page, Peter.
0: Ah, okay.
1: I quite enjoyed it, but speaking of going nowhere in your current job, Peter. (laughs) It's round and round in circles. Into Oblivion. Story number 463700. Programmed by Paul Gibbonson of Westcliff-on-Sea. Story by John Trevelyan. Art... By wrong turner. In the Gobi Desert, crashed NASA astronauts Blake Gordon and Lewis wander aimlessly trying to find a settlement, ignoring the risk of communists, and by morning have walked in a huge circle back to their crashed ship. Climbing aboard to look for an emergency pack, they discover their own dead bodies. They're ghosts! Wonder well <laughs> Not bad. I tried to work out who they were, Flash Gordon, Blake from Blake mm-hmm. Seven, Lewis C S Lewis from his space trilogy, don't know. But ever dependable Ron Turner.
0: <laughs> That's a one pager. A ghastly tale.
1: No, it's an eagle. I think it's an eagle. Spaceships and there's a sort of visceralness to scream stories. Yeah. yeah. I don't think this one's a scream story. I think the first two definitely are.
0: Yeah. It's too spooky. Yeah. On to the last one, Free by Christmas, by Brian Burrell, art by Cam Kennedy, hooray! It's story number 785491, programmed by Daniel Malt of Manchester. It's World War Two, and flying officer Johnny Slippery Elms, not his real middle name, is in Starlag 18. He is so determined to live up to his name. Throughout the end of the year, 1944, he attempts escape, a rash breakout, a foolhardy disguise attempt, all of them go badly and result in his rearrest and incarceration. Finally, just before Christmas, he hits on a new plan as the prison padre is about to deliver presents to the children of a nearby village. The delivery truck departs the Starlark, but the guards stop the Santa-suited padre and examine a suspiciously heavy sack on the back of the van. But it's just toys! The truck leaves with its escort. The presents are delivered But Elms Drives off without him The guards Rifle Still in the van He swapped places With the padre. Who's really going to be For it tonight Ho 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 Oh and he fulfilled his promise To be out by Christmas Bye 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 Yep I like the art
1: Yeah yeah Nice that. Oh Look we've had Worse Christmas stories We've had worse Christmas Amstore stories I'm happy to give This one a pass My my pick is probably Still bomb on flight 109, but nothing wrong with it. Nice to see a bit of World War Two back in a mm, Put a pin in that. Um, Which... uh,
0: the best Christmas story is still the photo strip collection. Oh, story. yes. Yes. That's it's... the best. <laughs> this isn't bad.
1: Amber stories can be a bit of fluff sometimes, and as long as it's not a bit of fluff all the time. Yeah. And it's not got a frickin' ghost in it, Peter. It's not a scream knockoff. It's. Genuine, 100% Amstor type Anthology Christmas story It's completely
0: random In other words, but strangely falls On December Christmas story Just for Christmas oh, yes.
1: Just like story number 1984 If that had been two weeks later, <laughs> it wouldn't have worked as I well. know
0: uh, What would be the point?
1: Speaking of pointless
0: <laughs> I wasn't going to say it
1: <laughs> Dan dear. Garok, Garok Story by... Dumb
0: toy or Scott Goodall.
1: Yeah. At by Ian Kennedy. Previously on Dan Dare, we've had a couple of months with titular alien, the mysterious Garok, hiding out in the body of holidaymaker Hilda Hodgson. And now finally on the cover of issue 141, we see a bizarre transformation take place as Hilda's body is consumed by the yellow alien commander... Hilda becomes a husk as Garok emerges at last and proceeds to make short work of a Stream Guard with an electric shock. And the Mekon orders his troops to carry out a bug hunt to find this mysterious escaping alien. Garok's got
0: a head tentacle.
1: He does have a head tentacle, yes. Which is electric. But only one, not ten. A head tentacle.
0: Oh, to behold. Uh, and
1: Hilda's dead. She's actually dead. Yep, Hilda is gone, Burgess. Wow, that was unexpectedly grim. Meanwhile, Dan and his crew have arrived at Endurus, the Pleasure Planet, not realising that this is the site of the Mekon's secret base. Dan takes a break from the cover for issue 142, while inside, Garuk actually diehards his way through the Mekon's <laughs> base, dispatching trains with ease along the way. Dan's crew land.
0: They're very away party style, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they are. And apologies to everyone, we do briefly see the ship's boxy computer again. I got it wrong. <laughs> it shows up again. Doesn't do anything, but it shows up again. It's
0: got one line.
1: And while Dan and Yang check out the reconnaissance flight as Professor Pinkerton wanders off and Jim Hardy's away into a motherland bear.
0: <laughs> Give us a hug.
1: In issue 143, the grizzly bear menaces our lady scientist on the cover of the issue, the same way sharks don't. <laughs> it's a very bear hug kind of Christmas here with Eagle. It is,
0: yeah, with 13th floor.
1: Yeah. Dad hears Pinkerton screams and rushes into action, blasting the upstart Ursi and revealing an assortment of electronic entrails and ingenious innards. It was a bionic Bruin, Peter, a gizmo yeah. grizzly,
0: <laughs> a wind up
1: Winnie the Pooh. I'm drifting. Yes. <laughs> It's a fake to provide enjoyous visitors with a bit of real-life camping danger. Leaving a fuming Pinkerton's Big Bear behind, Dan and Co set up the scanning equipment to track the Mekon's activity.
0: Speaking of camp, yeah. sorry, <laughs> speaking <laughs> of camp, back to Garok. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Meanwhile, Garok emerges from the Mekon's base onto an joyous ski field where he waylays two skiers, the first of his army. We have another great cover on issue 144 as Garok takes out the skiers. While inside the issue, the alien sprays the humans with a mysterious gas from his want to which he uses to control their minds. <laughs> Grabbing a ski lift attendant as a spare minion along the way, Garok and his team set out for the top of the ski mountain. The human's <laughs> absence is noted, though. And Dan's asked to join the search parties for them. And with nothing better to do, Dan sends out the Z99's hoverjet to investigate.
0: That Hoverjet is very cute, by the way. He looks like he has to has to squeeze himself into it.
1: But don't confuse the hoverjet with the snub fighter, but yes.
0: Oh, okay, maybe I am. There's a lot going on.
1: Yes, yes. There's no Christmas cover for Dan in issue one forty five. As inside, the hoverjet gets suddenly and abruptly blown out of the sky. Merry Christmas listen Dan races to investigate lifting off in one of Z-99's nifty one man mini fighters there we go lovely Kennedy spaceship art and within minutes Dan finds the crash site on the slopes of the artificial ski mountain but then he is struck by a mysterious beam and all power is lost to his ship ejector systems not working Dan has to manually eject from the falling craft and lands in his rocket powered escape suit Onto the snowy slopes of the mountain Where he is met by the three missing men But they're acting like zombies And they slowly advance on Dan To take him to their master Next time Dan's drop of doom
0: I love it when he walks in the uh, the ski lift And just sort of reaches the top of the mountain Looking for the Mekon's base Mm. And there are two people in the chalet Just looking at him in stunned silence As he sort of wheels by them in this sort of camp a little dodgem car ski lift. It's the
1: funniest thing. Yes, and very much a carry-on moment as the guy looks at his drink. <laughs> yep. <laughs> What's in the <this> eggnog? <laughs> Stuff is happening, but it's still remarkably leisurely on Enjoyus. Mm. Garok is just another evil alien supervillain, but at least it's dying.
0: Enjoyus is decidedly lacking in Fjords, the, the two shots they have of the planet. All of the planets' continents are strangely angular looking. They look like a tangram puzzle.
1: That's because, Peter, you, you get cowboys and, yeah, you know, if you want someone who gets an award for fiords, you got to pay the proper rate.
0: Speaking of cowboys and paying the proper rate,
1: it's regular features. As mentioned before, we've had two non-Dandere covers on issue 142. We've got a Ghostbusters promotion cover, which was big in 1984-85. And in mm. issue 145, though, pick of the bunch has to be the Christmas at Maxwell Tower wraparound cover poster.
0: That's your cover of the month, isn't it?
1: I think that's the cover of the month, although had out to issue 143's Bear Attack.
0: Yes, it's my cover of the month is 145. It sums up 1984, the scream injection.
1: You see Pinkerton's bear behind it.
0: <laughs> Something for everybody. <laughs> also good to see a bear on issue 143, I said. Look at that. Uh, And uh, did you spot the fans on centre on the cover of 145?
1: No, but I I was surprised they weren't actually in the issue because, yeah, yeah, yeah. 13th floor, there you go. Yeah, elsewhere. We do have the aforementioned Ghostbusters competition. You could win a Commodore 64 or a Spectrum. Dave Hunt also highlights that there's a possibility of having a British Rail Club coming to Eagle readership near you. In
0: negotiations,
1: yeah. Although, we should point out, is British Rail not available to overseas readers?
0: (laughs) No. That Ghostbusters competition, was it also
1: you win the video game?
0: I think the video game is reviewed in Software Seed anyway.
1: You get the video game with the computer, and if you're not so lucky, you just get the video game. Did you ever play it? Yes, I did, on a Commodore 64. Mm. My friend Scott Weatherall had it. Little tinny voice going, Ghostbusters!
0: Ah, oh, no! It's rendition on the spectrum of the theme. It was actually good for 16-bit. <laughs> and, but I couldn't work out that you know, it was all about building franchises. It was a weird economic model. Which brings me to Ad of the Month.
1: Ooh, what's your Ad of the Month, Peter? Well, it's really slim pickings. Polyconomy? Oh, yeah, that came here. Some sort of political board game. I, I never played it. We had people who said, don't buy that, it's crap. Was it any good?
0: We had it. Uh, so we had that. And we also had a board game called, I want to say it's called Wallago. No, it wasn't that. But it was basically you're playing a high country farmer. I think it was Australian. Uh-huh. But you had a sheep farm. And uh, that was much better. Polyconomy didn't have as much foot rot and uh, daggy ewes. But it was about, you know, getting power either by becoming rich or becoming a politician or something. It was just, it was dry. It sort of bred the sort of person I would avoid <laughs> otherwise in, in workplaces.
1: Did it have a hold of party card, Peter? Did your party have a party card?
0: Uh, I don't
1: know what you're on about now. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Software C. Uh, yes, has Strontium Dog and Danger Mouse Games.
0: I don't remember Stronte the dog and the death corner I remember the killing game oh, no, but I don't mean? remember death corner yeah it was for the C64 excellent sound they said damning with faint praise
1: hmm.
0: jetpack comes to the BBC micro now jetpack was excellent mm-hmm. you, you're on a jetpack on the moon Judy thinks it's like defender sideways scrolling
1: brilliant cool also mentioned in, in, in not quite software scene they talk about the Osborne computer programming books where you could buy a book that told you how to program a game where an asterisk chases an at-symbol around the screen. They're actually quite collectible now and hard to get no. because they're very ephemeral.
0: I guess like a lot of the um, the type-in and play games that were in the Your Sinclair and Smash and all of those mm. you know, computer-oriented magazines, they always had bugs in them.
1: Well, I was going to say, the thing with the bugs is it's actually... Something that they're now finding in the computer industry is people who didn't grow up with games like that and things where you had to tinker and build and you know swap out your hardware and work out that line 14 was wrong and fix it.
0: Mm. User visibility testing. Yeah, yeah,
1: it, it was a good learning thing that we all took for granted and is now somehow missing. That's why there's the advent of things like the Raspberry Pi, apparently.
0: Mm. Uh, fossil fish head, got any comments?
1: Fossil fish head, yes, <laughs> one of several sort of readers' features. Peter Bassett with his fossilised fish head he found at the beach, and Paul Whitney with Sheena the Buzzard. Mm. Although that does tie into my head in of the month bit, Peter. Yes, yes, yes. Woodpeckers from Space. <laughs> How did this warrant a full page ahead? Always well, black and white, too, to be honest. It's It's not even a woodpecker, Peter. It's a bee with a corkscrew sting.
0: Yeah, so it's it's another one of
1: those video magazines. No, it's not. It's a single. Oh, my God. Ask for the single, Woodpeckers from Space. We dare you. And I dare, dear listener, and you would have heard it at the start of the episode. I bloody dare you.
0: Holy cow.
1: Uh, I'm surprised they didn't have their asses sued off them because of Woody Woodpecker, but there you go. (laughs)
0: Um, So, David, have you ever heard of Pictor or Beta Pictoris?
1: I hadn't until I read the scientific articles in Eagle about Mm -hmm. um, Beta Pictoris and its planets, which were confirmed this century.
0: So apparently only visible in the southern hemisphere in Mm -hmm. our skies. Who knew? This time, just looking for crux. Renegold makes it into the art.
1: Yay! There's some good, interesting art. I think there's a, interesting to note that the money pages, the prizes on the money page, were doubled for Christmas outlay. So we do get some yeah. better art in the Christmas issue.
0: Paul Duffy's Uncle Terry worth the money.
1: It's better art than the glam teachers, anyway.
0: <laughs> this is a very camp looking um thing. just looks fabulous.
1: I thought he looked very trim and svelte.
0: He did too. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but also, speaking of readers' art, we have several instances of the Ghastly Gallery with a shout oh, out oh to the yes. very flash Ben Bosley of London. Ghastly picture. It's
0: like something out of Slane, like Glenn Fabry Slane. It's mm. gorgeous. He should have just walked away with the £50. Pounds. They should have said, no, done.
1: I've got to squeeze every last thing out of it. Like you're a Duck for Christmas <laughs> with plum sauce. <laughs> yeah,
0: Duck a rage. Speaking of... Fabulous Bloodfang. Yes, speaking of fabulous... <laughs> it's the man of the hour, Bloodfang. Story by John Wagner, art by Carlos Cruz. When last we left Hercules' kingdom, his plans to trap and tranquilise T-Rex Bloodfang had all come crashing down on him, quite literally.
1: Uh, now, question for you. Sorry, sorry. just yes, yes, yes. yes,
0: yes. Cruz or Ortiz? Cruz. It switches... It's Cruz It's all of it's Cruz You sure? That's got to be an error I'm pretty sure
1: 141, 142 accredited to Ortiz Admittedly Cruz does a great Ortiz
0: Mm, Maybe we just leave that to our readers Photos on the Facebook page Fortunately The stupefied predator collapses After taking three powerful tranquilizer darts Fortunately a nearby gap in the rocks Gives Herc shelter But then he's trapped in the crack And separated from his communicator From within his crevice, he adopts an old Brady Bunch special tactic and uses his belt to loop and drag the device to him. He radios Hogan back at Universal, and in time he's rescued, and the mighty dinosaur is netted, airlifted, and put on a portal, a time platform. His prone form shimmers and disappears to the 22nd century change in story. So, next episode in the Orwell Bubble Zoo of New London in 2150, the last remnants of Earth's vanishing animals' kingdoms are kept in vast polydomes, including several smaller dinosaur species.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: now there's a new guest at Orwell's: the T-Rex. They've dubbed Bloodfang Andy.
1: What a coincidence!
0: Yeah, because he was like Scarface before that, or something. But yeah,
1: oh, I don't, I don't know.
0: <laughs> Perhaps when he was unconscious, they found his label underneath him, or something.
1: His mum had written it on the back of his shirt,
0: yes. That's right. We meet Avon Orwell, elderly owner of the zoo, and backer of Bloodfang's big trip to the future. He and his granddaughter Hebby, which stands for Herbismund.
1: You know, is Hippy yeah. a boy or a girl? Not that it matters.
0: I thought Hebby was a girl, um, and I couldn't help feeling it was a nod to Ellen Hebden, but... What that says about Alan Hebden, I don't know.
1: Maybe heavy he isn't. I don't think it's ever actually.
0: Grandchild? Grandchild, yes.
1: Yeah,
0: it's just. Yeah. Possibly gender fluid, uh, non binary.
1: Well, again, like I said, 2150, you know, it is the future.
0: Yeah. Anyway, they watch Bloodfang tuck into a 40kg cube of Brontosaurus. That's the weight of a large child, he says comfortingly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to which Hippie goes Hmm
0: Hippie's not a large child <laughs> yes. But watching also Are two rangers Dodds and the mustachioed Sloane Who bet that Bloodfang can be tamed yes. Yeah I know Nice stone Yeah I know <laughs> And that night They break into Bloodfang's enclosure Sloane bragging I'm going to
1: ride that baby like a horse
0: <laughs> They approach the sleeping beast
1: Sorry, have you ever heard the Irish ballad, I have a horse outside? No. I might play that to you. Okie dokie. No, no, Um, the trouble trouble is, mm? since making the notes for this, since I read that, I've just not been able to keep a straight face about this whole thing of the story. All right, well, try to hold it together.
0: They approach the smithy Beast, but Bloodfang isn't sleeping and can't believe his luck. Sloane is picked up. In the beast's jaws and tossed around, Dodds flees, but is soon taken, and Bloodfang enjoys a meal of tasty, toxic masculinity. (laughs) In his apartment, Orwell is woken by Hebe as the other rangers arrive in the noises of Bloodfang's excited roars. Dodds is in bits, but Sloane is still alive, injured, and stalked by the T-Rex. Badly wounded, Sloane can't run. Bloodfang creeps up and licks the ranger, He, he likes me. Yes, Bloodfang likes Sloan very much. He could eat them all up. So he does. <laughs> Electro-prodding staff separate Bloodfang from what's left of Sloan the ranger. There we go. And Orwell, Hippy and her uncle Clyde assess the aftermath. Clyde is financial director of the zoo and ruminates over the sensational and inevitable headlines. Dodd's camera is retrieved with great snaps of the event. And Clyde considers selling them to the news drones.
1: I have to question the weirdness that the Orwell Bubble Zoo doesn't have constant surveillance of its own.
0: Maybe the warden's with a constant surveillance, and there's your problem, Orwell. Who watches the watchman? Yes, fair enough. Well, the news drones do, but Orwell refuses, and as his uncle leaves, Clyde draws a plan. Bloodfang is going to make him very rich. Can you say hookjaw? The next day, Bloodfang gets bigger and meaner, but at night, as the full moon pierces the polydome he calls to it, mourning the loss of his prehistoric home. At the Orwell home, Clyde and Old Avon clash when Avon says Bloodfang is pining for the Cretaceous and must be sent back, or he'll die. But Clyde has secretly bought him out, and knows the board of Orwell's would back him. During their argument, Old Avon suffers a heart attack and collapses, is taken to a hospital, and Clyde has the next move, and Bloodfang's future... Is in his hands. Story took a turn.
1: Next time, the Million Pound Death Challenge. Merry Christmas. Yes. (laughs) It's all gone hookjaw. But, you know, what's the one possible, conceivable way you could make hookjaw better?
0: Give him legs. Yes,
1: exactly. Exactly. I've got not much to say about Bloodfang because it's just so good. You know, just, there you go. Story. Five weeks. Yeah. (laughs) Boom.
0: <laughs> now you've got to hold it together Because you've got a fond farewell to do
1: Speaking of a story with legs Or one that <laughs> has legs no more
0: Speaking of an old one-eye
1: Yeah, speaking of dinosaurs, yeah Can't do that gag anymore It's the end of One-Eyed Jack Story by Jerry Day, Art by John Cooper Now, we're going to slide back an issue here To issue 140 Because we're doing jigger-pockery of the books Around Christmas time Things start, things stop Previously on one Eye Jack, well, if you missed it, it's too late now.
0: Mm.
1: Once again, ex-cop to military investigator One-Eyed Jack McBain puts on his lab coat and does a weapons report for his superiors on a top-secret prototype M18 assault rifle. Long-range, highly accurate, and armor-piercing. Jack is impressed, and he will leave for Washington the following day, But that night, the armory is raided by the terrorist group, the Army of Revolutionaries, the AOR, who kill the guards and steal the prototype. The alarm is raised, and Jack races back to the base, but it's too late. But reviewing the security footage, see, see all well's ooh, that's how you do it. (laughs) Jack recognizes one of the thieves, Virgil Kane, a fellow rookie cop from Jack's training days back in Brownsville, Brooklyn which is actually a real place, unlike the Doctor Who Black Castle of a similar vintage. Hmm. Knowing Kane's habits, Jack starts searching his old haunts in the Brownsville slums and finds his old friend, but is caught while breaking in. Virgil stops his co-conspirators from killing Jack outright and sends them outside so that the two old friends can chat. And then a shot rings out and Kane emerges. McBain is dead. The end of One I Jack. No. Uh, issue 141 or is he (laughs) we get a flashback to kane and jack walking alone kane firing a shot into the air and knocking jack out for all time's sake jack recovers and finds a handy discarded furry timetable which suggests the villains are headed for liberty island tonight at 6pm jack sets a trap and quickly dispatches the small fish but kane escapes in a speedboat and makes for the statue of liberty Preempting Ghostbusters 2, a whole film early, I should point out. Mm. Following in a helicopter, Jack watches through binoculars as Virgil climbs onto the observation platform in the statue's crown and fits a sniper scope to the gun. Playing a hunch, Jack discovers the vice president is sailing past on a cruise liner to Europe. No plane, reduced carbon footprint probably, and intends yeah. to shoot him with the prototype rifle. Drawing in close with the helicopter, Jack guns down his old friend. The day is saved, but Jack notes to General Mattis. the AOR knew about the prototype and the Vice President's trip, so there has to be a traitor in their midst. No shit Sherlock, you've known that for months! <laughs> uh, but finally in issue 142, on the 21st of May, the AOR carry out four synchronised attacks. Taking out a US Army Ordnance Base in New York State, destroying planes at the Jackson Airfield in Michigan, and assassinating the unfortunately named naval attache Wayne King. Wayne King. Yeah, Wayne King. And taking out the Skyways ballistic missile site in Charleston, West Virginia. General Mantis is going mental, but his best man is not on the case. In a locked record room, Jack has decided now is the time he'll try and track down the AOR mole. But after 10 hours of scouring through documents and records, you know, actual police work, he comes up with nothing. But his efforts have rattled the actual mole who sneaks into Jack's room using a ventilator system and knocks Jack out. It's Jack's friend and partner Colucci, which isn't a surprise, as along with Jack and Mantis, he's the only regular character in the strip
0: that's why I thought it was Mantis.
1: <laughs> the AOR has paid him a million dollars into a Swiss account. Think of all the luxury haunted dream houses, Peter. Anyway, Jack is bundled into an AOR escape car, but Jack manages to overcome his captors and forces the car into the Potomac River, and Colucci is shot in the struggle. Jack drags the dying defector to the riverbank and forces the AOR HQ location out of him but Kalushi warns the information is no good. The U.S. government will be destroyed in 48 hours. In issue 143, realizing the AOR's final target is the Pentagon, because once again the AOR leave useful cryptic clues, Jack Mm -hmm. contacts Mantis and starts scouring Kalushi's coordinates in Nevada with no luck until he finds a landmine with his car. (laughs) This is going by feel. Yes. After taking out the investigating guards, Jack steals their jeep and uniform and enters the secret base and scopes out a missile system being primed for launch. McBain just manages to get a message out before his cover is blown, and One Eye Jack proceeds to do what One Eye Jack does best, and chaos ensues. Mantis has troops at the ready, and the base is sealed off in a ring of steel. Jack is ordered out, but he refuses, storming through the base, looking for Mr. Big, the AOR leader. But just as he confronts a shadowy figure in a darkened room, Jack is blinded by a powerful spotlight and the Traitor General makes his escape in a helicopter. Hours later, when all the mopping up is finished, Mantis congratulates Jack on a job well done. But the Bane knows Mr. Big is still out there, and one eye Jack will be ready for him, with a Magnum 44 and his own brand of justice. The end of One eyed Jack. Next time, meet Gort, the secret agent with a difference.
0: He's got two eyes.
1: So that's it. So far, so Jack. Yeah. Oh. Clichéd end. Fairly rushed.
0: Very rushed. Yeah, that's what I would say. It just ran to a rapid end, but still refused to finish. You know.
1: Well, you know, it might come back one day. I'm sure the shadowy figure could be matters.
0: Well. Yeah, the point, as you say, being that Mantis and Carlucci are the only regular characters that have been all the way through. So this shadowy Mr. Big, there's no satisfaction in that. Sort of finding the mole. The mole could have been Virgil, and, oh, I don't know. It's just there.
1: I think this is the point to maybe acknowledge the legacy of One Eye Jack. Yeah. And by 1984 standards, it's become quite a clunky read. But if you look back at things like Dredger, Mm. which, you know, Came out after this, or you know, around the same time as this originally, you can see sheer DNA. Yeah, yeah, and but what was going on at the time, and you know, this is what comics used to look like ten years before Eagle.
0: Yeah, which is worrying. Why it's an eagle?
1: It's been a fair run. I enjoyed it as a kid. Yeah, I, I have yeah. to say, even if it is a bit bonkers, it's action, it's adventure, it's it's not robo machines.
0: No. No, but then it's not Monster.
1: No, 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 I get that, yeah. (laughs) It could have been something new and cool, but it's an interesting legacy character, I feel.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly if I'm going to gripe about reprinting old comic strips, then hold my beer, says Eagle. (laughs) Let's move swiftly over to our last story of the episode, shall we? And it's Monster by Rick Clark, John Wagner, uh, many years after uh, when I jack mm-hmm. and Jesus Redondo on out in a lonely wood three Blackpool thugs have shotgun Terry Corman the Bridchester monster but as they fill in his grave Terry bursts out of the soil grabbing ringleader Bert Winkler and killing him throwing his lifeless body into a tree the remainders Curly and Mick try to defend themselves but not very well and in the fracar Curly shoots Mick in the back and Terry fells Curly with a spade Bad man, not friend, a oh, ter- bad man, bad. Terry leaves them where they lie, bleeding heavily from his shot shoulder. He staggers blindly, then collapses, and 20 minutes later, a car's headlights pick him up on the roadside. A couple recognize the monster, and the next day, his nephew Kenny is told that his uncle Terry has been found, along with five other bodies. <laughs> when Terry wakes, Kenny is at his bedside and the two share a joyous reunion. Police Inspector Halley looks on, and in the days to come, he records Terry's rambling, childlike relation of his recent bloody adventures. (laughs) Terry realises he's done bad things, but when he gets mad, he doesn't care. Then, after the killings, he's sorry. A week later, Terry is recovered enough for his next home, prison. (laughs) And in captivity... Tyri resigns himself to a life of obedience. He's taken for psych and word association. <laughs> dog kill, kill dog, don't not like dog, kill old dog and ink blots. Blood. More blood. Big poo blood. <laughs> Come back soon doctor. Play more game. Show tell more pretty pictures. Er uh, quite. <laughs> Outside, Kenny is in a children's home, but research has uncovered the existence of an aunt in Australia. Happy to take him in.
1: Paternal aunt, one assumes.
0: Yes, yes. An opportunity to put the past events behind him. But the courts have deemed Terry too dangerous to be spared and unfit for trial. He is to be transferred to a maximum security hospital for the rest of his life. As Kenny is bundled off to Sydney, Terry is bundled off to prison on the south coast. A share a farewell. Kenny telling Terry that if he behaves, he can come to Australia too. It's a lie. Australia's no place for convicted criminals.
1: <laughs> they just deported me.
0: <laughs> what was the country built on, I ask you? But on the eight-hour road trip to the mental hospital, Terry's van swerves to dodge a stray dog. Kill dog. No. Um, and it tumbles off the road. It's a coastal road. Down rocks and catches fire
1: could thing think it wasn't a British nuclear fuels truck.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's just the way I wrote that. It sounded like the dog caught fire. Um,
1: <laughs> Do you want to reread it? T- take another run at it. I
0: don't know. There's a magic in how it, how it comes out. On the eight-hour road trip to the mental hospital, Terry's van swerves to dodge a stray dog, and the van tumbles off the coastal road, down rocks and catches fire. Terry is conscious, but the driver's not, and despite trying to wake him, Terry flees the burning van, dragging the stricken prison guard out before the van explodes. The prison warden lies still and Terry realises the police will blame him for the crash. He snaps his handcuffs and sets off again as seasonal snow begins to fall and a chill sets in. A passing car sees the van and rescues the unconscious warden who tells them of the monster's escape and in the snowy night, Terry trudges on, stopping at a cottage to watch a family sing carols together as the snowfall thickens, he sleeps under what shelter he can find. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay rings out from the house. But alone and lost, Terry sleeps. The spirit of Christmas does not extend to monsters.
1: Merry Christmas, kids. <laughs> That's the third
0: Christmas tie-in this
1: month, but um, yeah, bittersweet. Kitty is sent solo to Australia. I mean, it's the 80s, I suppose it's... Normal. It just seems odd now. Does he need a passport?
0: He'd need a passport. I'm sure they could arrange that, and mm. he could be a child flying by himself. Yeah, sure. Why not?
1: Well, I just given his history for vanishing, who knows? Yeah. Terry's actually tried to be uh, restrained at, at Her Majesty's pleasure. Mm. Don't Google that, kids. <laughs> <laughs> but th- that was that was pretty good. Yeah, I, I know. Redondo's art is lovely as always. Hmm. Puts puts Deere and one Eye Jack to shame.
0: Thank God there's finally been a reunion between Kenny and Terry. It does feel like they've been separated for quite a while. I hope it's sort of moving to a resolution soon because we've sort of been through the circuit a bit now and we're once again separated, but we'll see.
1: You know, there's a lot of sea between Terry and Kenny. Is this the end of Kenny? Not the end of Kenny, but is this the last we see of Kenny for a- the rest of the story, bundled off to Aussie. don't know. Sounds like an ignominious, so proper way to go. Where did to go? He got bundled off to Aussie.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So of the issue. Yes, well, Peter. What was your pick for the best and the worst for this Christmas run of stories with Eagle?
0: Look, I have to give props for Monster for changing up. It's mm. been a good month for Monster. But once again, it's the thirteenth floor. Max is just so devious. Hmm. I mean, he's really overstepping the mark with Jerry now. You've got to wonder where he's going to go with this.
1: At least he didn't take photos of him with that nurse.
0: No, no. He's he's not that bad. What about you? What's your top story?
1: Uh, my top story, I'm going to say it's Bloodfang. Okay. We've gone from Bord Free to Jurassic Park to... Um, Hookjaw. <laughs> to Hookjaw, exactly. <laughs> and we've got interesting characters. And While... We can look at it going, ah, it's hooked 12 year old me. Didn't know. No, this was new. This was wow. This was cool and original. So, yeah, yeah, mm. what could possibly mm. go wrong?
0: Nothing yet. I see.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and your leastest favouritest,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think Robo Machines gets a bit of a buy, yeah, this month because. One Eye Jack is finishing, and I know it seems disrespectful to sort of put that in the can on its last lap. It's not much of a lap. No. I didn't feel the pull.
1: No. I mean, I'm the same but different. I will give One Eye Jack a, a bye as it leaves the room. Don't let the door hit your mm-hmm. ass on the way out. Fair enough. And Robo Machines gets my, my lemon of the month, but yeah, buck your ideas up.
0: Cool. No, no that's all right. We're in equilibrium, so that's, yeah. we, we can't cancel each
1: other. That's that's good. Yes. Definitely. But join us next time. Next year. Next year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: So, next episode will inevitably, of course, be the 1984 Ernie's. Mm -hmm. Um, We will be putting instructions out on the Facebook page as to the categories. We've got a couple of new ones and we've retired a couple, but we really want to hear from you as to what your your favourites of the year were. And then, Eagle enters 1985, but that can wait. Until then,
1: everyone please stay safe and well. It's a very good night from me. And it's a very good night from me. Good, good night.
0: night. And I don't need insurance I don't need no package space. And if you try to clap my horse, he'll kick you in the face. He runs up in a shell gal, and he jumps like Tillman org. He looks like Billy Piper after half an hour's call. The boys are looking jealous as I lead you one away. Just before.
1: But you back to the up but you don't oh, on it get, it get up i know you back to up get it. up get it up get it up, but you get up. Get it up. Oh, yeah.